I think the secret sauce is, is that you are consistent in what you are talking about, right? So like what I do is I talk yeah. about how to make companies more efficient, identify this efficiency and scale it. I do so by being very authentic. I talk about the failures. Yeah. I talk about the successes. I'm very, very open about very uncomfortable things. I, I want to build trust with the people who in the end give me th their money in some way, right? Like whether these yeah. are the clients, whether these are the paid subscribers on the website, whether these are people who are just engaging with my stuff, exposing me potentially to others. This is product-like growth. Yeah, it's a cycle. It's the cycle of PLG life. <laughs> cue, <laughs> cue music, dramatic music. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Product West Podcast. Thanks for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Scott Burleson and joining me as always, my co-hosts Jan Vermuth and Jonathan Edwards. Well, today we welcome our very special guest and our first repeat guest, Leah Theron. And well, 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 where do we begin? Last January, I was captivated by Leah's writing on a topic I knew nothing about, product-led growth, even as though, and I hate to even admit this, as I was leading product uh, for a, a product called Blueprinter Software, but I was not familiar with product-led growth. But in getting up to speed, I found Leah's writing to be concise, educational, entertaining, sometimes irreverent, often, I'll say usually funny, but always, always useful. I'll say always entertain, entertaining also. I've always looked uh, I very much enjoyed him, but I'm not the only one. At that time, she had 12,000 followers on LinkedIn. I remember that. And I think it was around 15 by the time she was on her episode. And I, hey, I correctly predicted on that episode, by the time we connected again, it'd be over 30 and we're at 34. And by the time all you crazy people listening to this, I have no doubt. I really expect this. It'll be over 40. It'll be over 40. Um and as a result, Leah's created some interesting opportunities for herself, and we are certain to chat about that. Well, Leah Theron, welcome home. We're happy to have you back on the Product Quest podcast. I am so happy to be on my favorite podcast of all times. This Aww. is this is this is so nice. No, for real. Like the only thing that's missing still is um, you know, like a fire somewhere, like a bonfire or something like that. Just like yeah. And Jan is playing the guitar. Yeah, oh, no, better not me. I think you're more suited to that. <laughs> it is. It is so good to be here. No, it's it's, it's crazy. Um, it feels like years because so much has happened. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah, a lot has happened. Yeah. But thank you for the introduction. That was very kind. Yeah. Well, I truly mean every word of it. And you know, sort of as a result, I feel like I've had a front row seat to at least part of your solopreneurship journey, if you use that term. But so let's talk about that. You know, how did you start? What was your catalyst? I don't know if you've used the term side hustles, but just for conversation, what was yeah. sort of your catalyst for beginning that along with what was, uh, you know, a full-time gig? So maybe maybe I can introduce myself with the past. So like yeah. what I used to do and now what I'm trying to do. So, I mean, yeah. I'm not new to advising, right? So like, mm. Um, I made recently an announcement that I'm going to go full-time advising because I'm going to lay down my job at uh, Jua. And um, this was always planned, but not at that time, like not that fast. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And what I used to do in the past was I had a full-time role and always also two advising mandates on the side. Um, nothing big, you know, like eight hours per month. Um, that was the time that I gave myself to advise companies on the side. 
and it's it's a lot of fun. It's all it's a lot it's a lot of money, and it was very very successful as well for me. And and um, what happened was that I got under pressure from two positions in the same time. And the first one is you get just much more inbound from the sides, right? Like people enjoy your stuff, and then they ask like, "Hey, can you advise?" And I'm just like, "No, no, 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 no," because I'm not someone that is overworked in that sense, but I'm very aware of what I say no to, to not be overworked. I think that's the first part. And then the second thing was we did a very interesting pivot at Jua from the company strategy. And I kind of helped pivot myself out of there. <laughs> so the company is now <laughs> heading into a direction that is absolutely 100% correct. Mm. Um, but at the same time, this is not where I want to be from my own personal growth perspective. And you know, I got to be honest, like I had a lot of hesitation whether I should quit because it doesn't look good in your CV to some degree, right? And so forth. And then actually I was talking with my CEO about this and he was just like, hey, you know, like we should better do it now rather than in two years when you're like, you know, um, when the decision becomes even harder. Because if you don't see yourself where the company is going right now, which is in energy trading, which I find extremely interesting, but it's just not where product-led growth is for me. Mm. Um, yeah, so then the decision was relatively clear. So now I made the jump. And the scary thing is, is like nothing material that has changed so far. It's like, you know, I start to go over my bank accounts. How long can I sustain this if the market breaks away? Or I have no reason to be scared at all, but I am. So I... <laughs> I guess I guess that's a good summary of it. Yeah. Yeah. Only the paranoid survives. That's what my wife tells me. <laughs> Your wife, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know whether that's true, but yeah, sure. There is something though in the consulting world. It's like we can. Well, what my my grandfather used to say, if you ask him, well, "How are things going?" Oh, I've had a lot of rain. Or, "How are things going?" Ah, it's been awfully dry. How are things going? It's been really hot. And I feel like it was like it, it was always terrible. And I feel like in consulting, all is sort of that way in that either, wow, I'm buried. There's so much business. Or, man, things are so slow. It's like you just can never, there's never a, oh, things are great. I have a perfect, because there's so much uncertainty yeah. about pipeline no. and things coming in. And, and you hate, you, I don't know if you, I, I took a note about what you mentioned uh, you were conscious of what you say no to. I, I find that hard to say no to really anything yeah. that's sort of revenue generating. <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, no. Like this is something that I also started to learn in business itself, right? So like I run myself like a product and yeah. Yeah. you have to say no to the stuff yeah. that keeps you from the long term. Now, yeah. I'm not going to say no to revenue if it just flatters in the house, right? Yeah. That's right. But like you always pay some price. Yep. you always do and if you onboard the wrong customer they will keep you distracted if you think yep. like yeah i can maybe yep. load one more client on top of this you're probably already at capacity mm -hmm. so i mean the alternative was to just burn out mm -hmm. to take too much on and think like that i can handle this in some way and then quit yeah. and yeah. then go for another three months burn my britches with my old employer and then right. you know that that was that was just not an option and um yeah but yeah, I mean, I know. I mean, it is difficult. You know, like 10 years ago, I think if you would have told me that I'm going to be an advisor or consultant, filthy words, <laughs> right. absolutely filthy. <laughs> right. um, but uh, yeah, here we are. 
I think um, I have to call myself that now. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a there's a choice, but but I think you 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 might run into the risk that you will will be called from other people that way. But you can try to kind of push it. I mean, I'm in a very similar position. I think if you would have asked me five or ten years, well, five years ago even, if I would do anything like things that I'm doing now, even, well, let alone be on a podcast. Uh, I wouldn't have, I would have never said that I would be doing something like this. So, so, but in hindsight, it's quite okay. So <laughs> it works. You know, there is, um, there's a very interesting thing from behavioral sciences about this. Um, when we try to imagine how the future is and, or like how we changed compared to the past. So like, let's say we go back five to 10 years, it's very easy for people to kind of recognize how much they changed. Right. So like, I'm not yeah. the same person that I was five years ago. Not the same person that I was 10 years ago. My God, I don't want to be in the same room as this person, right? Yes. But it is interesting when we try to imagine ourselves on how we will be in five to 10 years, there we start to struggle, right? So like backwards, it seems to work extremely well. Um, but forward, it does not really work, right? So like what we think is, okay, like if I'm going to do these things, we still kind of apply the person that we are today rather than... I will also develop with this, right? So like, and then I will be fine. But you cannot imagine this future state first before you kind of know whether you can take a challenge. And for me, a lot of the things that I have learned in my consulting business and also about product-led growth, so I advise on product-led growth and growing companies in that sense, is, is that sometimes you just have to trust that you have the talent in-house within your abilities without knowing the way. Yeah. And you'll figure it out. It, it really sounds a bit esoteric, you know, like, oh, the universe will figure it out. That's not what I mean. I just mean, like, if you have talented people and there is a way to find, you will find it even if you do not see it from the get-go, maybe. And yeah. that that is currently my life's philosophy, I'd say. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. I feel, I feel like there is, oh, I mean, for me, that's connected to just the basic idea of growth. I mean, growing it, I mean, growing some kind of, it implies that something is bigger than, well, it's smaller now than it is going to be afterwards, right? That somehow seems to be essentially the idea of growth. And probably that fits also to challenges and personal stuff. So you will always be a bit smaller than the challenge that you take on. Otherwise, it wouldn't. It, it would also not be a challenge. No. But, but that's kind of, I think this, so there is always this element, stuff that you want to do, that's somehow, maybe that's just me, but there's always a mix of it being scary and exciting. You're all, I mean, of stuff that you really care about, I mean, it can go wrong. And that's, and then that, at least I'm scared of that, but it, there's always that mix, I, I think, I don't know. No, you know, I think being afraid of what goes wrong is kind of changing with age. Like the reasons why something can go wrong, like I give less and less, I'm not sure what I could swear on this podcast. <laughs> oh, anything's good. You're good. All right. So I give less and less shits about what people think about me <laughs> yeah. gradually. Right. So like this is a gradual process. I'm not yeah. a, I'm not where my other colleagues are at, but um, <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to think less about that. I care more about the outcomes and I care less about the money. Now, that does mm. not mean that I'm just going to reduce my prices. That's not what I mean. I, I'm very firm in what I do. But like. It is an awfully solitude experience if you don't have challenges in your life like you know like something where you can just feel like you're challenged and um 
that is a strength in some ways, for sure, because you grow faster. But it also sometimes becomes a weakness because I always remember that when I post on LinkedIn basics about product like growth, you know, like the general frameworks, for instance, we, we, on which I talked about already 150, 200, 300 times. <laughs> right. People love it, right? So like most yeah. of the people that have come to my stuff, they love it. They're like, oh my God, this is so great. And I'm just like, oh, I wish I could talk about something else now sometimes, you know, like not not, yeah. not, not a different topic, but more in depth on on specific topics and i can do that with my with my clients you know and the people that need operational help of course because everybody is different but um yeah it is a it is a finicky thing isn't it it's it's constantly a pull of good and bad you know yeah but can well, i just out of interest oh sorry i was gonna say you know there, there's um there's, i remember before you talking about a couple of things like earlier in your career I forget your exact word. I think I actually I do remember exact words. I think you found you said you found some things you suck at. If I if I remember that correctly, that sounds like me. Yeah, or or maybe you didn't enjoy, but you found yourself in, and that was sort of a yeah. catalyst to, that pushed you forward to find things you, you you did enjoy more. And the other thing we talked about before is imposter syndrome, and the the thing that feels difficult to know. Well, like you know, like on the show, like American Idol or whatever the singing shows. Invariably, there'll be somebody that just thinks they're an amazing singer and they go out there and they're just terrible. And then like, that's my nightmare that that's me, you know, with that, like, yeah. I guess that is that's the essence of imposter syndrome, really, where you're you're, um, you know, you're afraid about this way you perceive yourself. The expertise you perceive is just sort of this this fantasy. I yeah. This is a very this is a very interesting thought. And I think there's an interesting thing happening there in general when we. Um, evaluate the performance of people. Yeah. So what we do when we laugh about people who suck, that think that they're good, yeah. what we're really doing is we're trying to put an objective measure on them. Maybe they've never heard mm. that they suck, right? Or they don't right. want to hear about it or whatever. Um, but there is something nefarious about laughing mm. at people because what we do mm. is we really reinforce our own inferior mm kind of complex about the world yeah. right because yeah. we now feel like oh that's not me right so like right. by laughing at someone and pointing our fingers mm -hmm. we kind of separate ourselves from this group and it is weird because in some way we love binary systems you know like winning and losing like you have a soccer match there's one team winning, the other one is losing, or there's yeah. a tie, but like there's nothing in between, right? So like it's it's either one of these three outcomes. Yeah. Um, weightlifting, whatever it is, like we just we love to put numbers on stuff, right? So like you're good if you if you lift 200 kilograms or like 50 or 100. And I think one of the reasons of this is is that it is very easy to compare these numbers, but it is very hard to determine how hard someone works for specific things. Yeah. Whereas this is what we actually should reward in people, right? Yeah. It's not like where you end up. It's more like, okay, how much effort did you spend on something? Yeah. And I think this is where an imposter syndrome comes from. It's a dark side of our psyche, not just like that yeah. we think ourselves are like this, but we also judge others based on this. All of us do this. I do this yeah. too. Um, yeah. I'm just trying to be aware of it whenever I can. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember this experience with... Um, I went to see a concert with a very good musician and I didn't enjoy the concert that much. And I didn't, I was judging and didn't think it was that good. And this, uh, this person actually was extremely um, 
complimenting of the of the of the concert and of the singer and saying it was how great it was and how mm. courageous you had to be to just go on stage and 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 produce something and and uh, and it really made me think and i've noticed also that uh, people who who criticize a lot other people often will not mm. themselves do something because in the end through criticizing others you criticize yourself too you you're hard yeah. on others and on yourself and vice versa so i think that's a, a really really good point you you kind of you kind of deny a future of yourself to be a beginner again right at something mm -hmm. because like yeah. hey look i'm laughing at this person that is shit and then people say like yeah but you know like that's not the point it's the point that she's just standing there and that she's so um self or like unaware of herself and and uh, yeah no you're absolutely right by criticizing these things we kind of deny ourselves to be a fool sometimes in the future as well and um yeah i don't know yeah there we go that was the philosophical part of the discussion but <laughs> well, <laughs> i totally agree yeah it reminds me of when we when we started this podcast reach out to these guys i've i've I laid out a GK Chesterton quote. See if I can remember it. A thing worth a thing worth doing is worth doing poorly, uh, which I interpret that to mean sort of give yourself permission to be a beginner. It's like you know, not because you don't have some expertise. So I mean, we knew we totally knew nothing. We know a little more now than we did then, but we're, we 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 still are you know, we are beginners. I think or I don't know. We're we're somewhere along that continuum of of developing no. sort of our skills if you will but we didn't let the um the fact that we were we like we know nothing about what we're doing at all uh to stop us but i think i like i like that quote because i think i, I think this i think you're right i think the um you know when we when we this fear that we're going to get so far over our skis or this imposter syndrome thing it can really be paralyzing and just stop. Then it then it sort of stops the growth process. And what do you do? You just you retreat back into what you know, what's comfortable, and um, you, you're probably not going on your own out outside of the big company uh, gig. Yeah. 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 One hundred percent. Yeah. Let's talk about let's 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 going back to when you were uh, you know still had well you still had that full time job, but when you were doing that and also. The um, you were starting to do the side hustles. Are you one, I'm wondering about your strategy to sort of how you fence uh, when when you're doing one and when you're doing the other. You mentioned one thing about you limit the number of hours, but but what else? What else did you find yourself doing? It, it it occurs to me that a difficulty might be it's not just the hours, but sort of mind share, like what you're thinking about. But how did how yeah. did you manage that? So that's a very good point. There's there's a very specific limit that we have in terms of context switching of what we can do. And when I talk about eight hours before advising every month that I took on, that does not mean that I have eight different mandates for one hour a month. So yeah. there is a limit to the amount of context that you can switch as well. For me, I would say if you have a full-time role, loading on another two serious, you know, like serious mandates where you have to just like stay Every week you have to come up with something and you have to give insights. That is probably the limit because there will be times where you have to decide where your focus is going to be and it always should be on your full-time role. It's just yeah. what it is. Right. So for me, the full-time role always came first, then the advising mandates. And I knew that I cannot accept to under-deliver on these, on these advising mandates as well. So what can I do? I can only reduce the number of advising mandates that I have. 
everything else that came afterwards, my personal holidays, LinkedIn, my own Substack or whatever, that is stuff that I can scale without my full-time role or the consulting mandates to suffer. Because as I said, you know, like I'm running myself like a product, like growth product. This is what I'm talking about. My prices are public. I'm public about what I offer. I give a lot of stuff for free. So this word of mouth from these clients, you know, like also having good, my students, for instance, also in the cohort classes and so forth, this is incredibly um, important. And if, if this does not kind of, if the minimum quality for those things that really matter for me cannot be guaranteed, then you have to cut down before, right? So like you need to have some kind of safety margin because, you know, in an early stage startup like Jua, there will things go wrong all the time. You can have a week where there's nothing happening and then suddenly like, holy shit, you know, like yeah. everything just breaks loose. Specifically now in machine learning, every two weeks, there's a new breakthrough that is absolutely mind blowing. Mm. Um, it's just crazy. So you need to limit yourself because otherwise you do, you do start to burn out. So having said that, there is an important context here for people to understand in that, I mean, I'm an executive in my full-time role. So I have a lot of freedom that normal operative people in that sense may maybe not have. And I'm saying this because I worked myself there very, very clearly. So when I started advising, um, I was back in an operative role as a, I think I was staff or I don't know, staff PM again or whatever. Um, and I did not want to have some kind of head off role or whatever. And I started there to advise people free, like for free, right? So like I could always scale that down because if you don't collect money for it, it's easier to also say no, right? So like yeah. I started to experiment. I started yeah. to coach people. I had a lot of one-on-one -on -one relationships and so forth. So I slowly, slowly, slowly scaled it up. And when I switched my job, I already had a considerable following on LinkedIn. Um, and then when Andreas asked me whether I want to come to Jua, there was no... There was no, you know, homework or whatever that I had to do. It was just about like, hey, when can you start? Here's the challenge that we have from the business. What do you think about it? Because they already knew what I'm about because I gave all my mm. material out on the outside. And I negotiated very clearly with them. Hey, you know, like I have an advising business on the side. Do you trust me to run this so it's not to the detriment of the company? And he said, yeah, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. The only condition that we have is that you always put if I have new clients that I put it out to the board first. So I have to report to the board when I get new advising clients. This mm. is just to avoid competitor clauses, that kind of stuff. I am also being, um, um, by my clients, they run due diligence on me just because of at, at, at some price you become a big position in their budget, right? So like they run due diligence on you. They do make reference calls sometimes. And it's just different, you know, like in the details. But the gist of it is you you have to make sure that when you think you can take on four, you can probably take on two. Have yeah. to separate yourself in that sense. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that answers your question, but don't take on too many different mandates because the context switching also costs. Right. No. The other thing I was wondering about is what you answered is sort of how you manage expectations, you know, with the full-time employer it sounds like just a lot of transparency and in this case you had the advising when you joined so it was sort of part of the uh, and you kept them apprised as you went along so uh, there's you know the folks that are attracted to product management in general or maybe a little more entrepreneurial minded anyway so i don't think it's to me it's you see lots of folks in product 
former product managers, you know, sort of branching out. And I think that's just how their brains wired. So I imagine there's a lot of people, product managers, very experienced listening to this no. with, with similar desires, put it that way. And I thought that was a really interesting uh, thing you said about you, you started taking on some clients for free. And that sounds like a great idea. Um, what occurs to me is, again, you can sort of manage the amount of work. They can't really ask for anything or be unhappy with the deliverables. They're not paying. Um, but uh, so it gives you a little flexibility to sort of experiment yeah. a bit. Uh, um, it's your first too- MVP version, right? Like this is the classical product cycle that we have. Yeah. It's my first MVP version of myself. Yeah. What are my gaps, right? Like what do yeah. I suck at? So the moment I charge, I kind of guarantee that I know specific yeah. things. So it is in my interest as well that as soon as I do charge money and I feel like I'm not having leverage again, that I proactively cancel the the, the, the relationship because I, sh- I should have impact. Because if I feel like I'm not going to have impact, I'm not just going to charge them for months and months and months. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, because that leads to bad word of mouth and it's just yeah. it's just not good, right? Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Let's talk about some some nuts and bolts. Things, something I'm very curious about. Mm-hmm. Um, your marketing strategy or your content strategy, or however you word it. Um, I'm just I'm curious about your your sort of systems, your methods. How do you manage your queue of items to work on? What's your what's your sort of writing schedule? Because you're you're very prolific. So. What I'm going to talk about is what I did two months ago. Because since then, I've just been recycling stuff, and I've been running mm-hmm. on a on the on the on the down low let's put put it that way um so i had a couple of health problems in the last couple of weeks so this is why you know like my stuff is now a little bit uh, up and down what you do start to notice once you have much more content just as i do right like i have a huge content bank in that sense yeah. and i can recycle some stuff so i can go yeah. back to articles that are 6 to 7 months old now that doesn't sound like a lot but like if you write as much as me, you develop a lot yourself mm. as well in these six to seven months. So this is a long time ago for me, right? Like I don't even have an article that is a year old. All of them are deleted. Like it's just like I cannot look at them anymore. But what's cool about it is I have good statistics on what did work with yeah. clients or like not clients, sorry, like with with yeah. um, um with my followers, with the people that have subscribed to my stuff. And the good thing is sometimes I can take these old articles and rework them. I just, sometimes I read them and I'm like, what the heck was going through your head? That is, you could have said that much better, right? So, and then I reworked them. Like a lot of the frameworks that I did, I are actually like fourth or fifth iterations. Yeah. And I started to notice that this is why it's so hard for people to copy me. Um, mm. You can copy my stuff one-on-one, right? Like you can just copy whatever I write. That's that's fine, but like it will not perform on LinkedIn. Like I think the secret sauce is, is that you are consistent in what you are talking about, right? So like what I do is I talk yeah. about how to make companies more efficient, identify this efficiency and scale it. I do so by being very authentic. I talk about the failures. Yeah. I talk about the, um, the successes. Um, I'm very, very open about very uncomfortable things um, like pricing. <laughs> And some other thing, like which I was not the first, by the way, I just copied someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is what it is, right? So like I'm, I, I want to build trust with the people who in the end give me th- their money in some way, right? Like whether these yeah. are the clients, whether these are the paid subscribers on the website, whether these are people who are just engaging with my stuff, exposing me potentially to others. This is product-like growth um, all the way around. So, you know, um, 
yeah, it's a cycle. It's the cycle of PLG life. <laughs> cue, cue music, dramatic music. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was sort of scribbling down your attributes. Well, there's a couple of things to build off of. Um, one is that in, in my own writing, I've, I'd sort of, I've, I don't recycle as much as I probably should. And so it's just like, I'm sort of, I'm just, I don't really have a system. And so that, I think that impacts my, my productivity, but I was, I was sort of scribbling down your notes about um, the attributes of a really an effective post. When I, I'm sure I missed some things, but I wrote down is you want to build trust. You want to be, be authentic share successes, share uncomfortable things. And then, um, what did, whatever. Oh, then I think I missed something, but I, I feel like you said like you have certain core. Well, let me just ask you, well, let me, let me read those again. Tell me what you would add to that. You want to build trust. You want to be authentic, share successes, share uncomfortable right. things. What else is yeah. on our short list of a great LinkedIn post? Okay. So let's talk about why I can go full-time advising. Like, why do I have this freedom right now that pays yeah. me this much money? that I yeah. can actually do this because this yeah. is the heart of the question that you're asking me right now. Yeah. Like what is the methods to get there? Yeah. And so this is a business, right? So like, this is, this is, this is my own personal business, but it fundamentally works also like every other business where multiple people are working. in. Yeah. If we are thinking about what is the long-term success of any business, and there's a combination of two factors. The first one is how much work you put into it. And the second factor is how efficient you put it into. Mm. Like, so like how efficient is the stuff that you're putting into, right? Yeah. These two things together give you the impact that you have in the market. Now you hopefully are also doing it in a market that is big enough. That's completely to the side, right? So what I mean with that is, let's say you are a tennis player and you go to practice every week for five hours. That's the amount of work that you put in every week, five hours. It's a flat, it's a flat number. Now, if you start to listen to tennis podcasts or like you start to study theory or study material and so forth, then you make these five hours more efficient on top. Now, you could say, okay, like this study is also like putting in work, but that's not what I mean, right? So like this is like this is the actual work of doing something. And the other side is the, 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 the work of making it efficient. The problem that we have when we're looking at this kind of stuff is that we completely over-index on how important efficiency is because that's the shiny thing. So no amount of reading books, no amount of reading podcasts will get you further in any area of life unless you do practice at the start. And we tend to overestimate this by a big, big margin. So what you were, like, for instance, I could have answered your question before with, here's how you write a hook, then you should not post every four hours. Then you should do this. I post at 7 uh, a.m. in the morning and then I do this and then I take a coffee and then I jump into an ice bath and then I, I don't know, then I slap someone <laughs> around the corner or whatever. But these are very writable topics, right? So like these frameworks of tactical things are very, because they're applicable, right? So what you can do is you can learn how to be efficient on things. But let's say you're extremely efficient, but you just don't train a lot. Let's say you're you're consuming so much stuff about tennis every day for five hours, and that makes you 20% more efficient than others. Well, it turns out if you do not practice five hours like the other person, then these 20% don't mean that much. And this is obviously dependent on the activity that you do, but this is the same thing for writing and also having a content empire like I do or whatever you want to call it. 
The one thing you have to figure out is consistency. If you feel like you have a problem with motivation, there's no efficiency framework that is going to get you there. Because what we do think is, we think that, oh, well, if I just had a couple of tips and it would work, then I would get the attention. And then I would kind of, then it would kind of work, right? Like then I would be motivated every day to do so. That is absolute garbage. I have multiple posts every week that have more engagement than 99.9% of people on LinkedIn. Does this motivate me? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Because what do I do? I compare myself to people who have more, right? Some of my best friends, they're just far better writers. They just have better material around this stuff. So the question that you have to answer yourself is, how do I create a habit? So how do I become consistent Mm -hmm. in writing? Now, everybody tells you, yeah, consistency is key, but they don't tell you how to do it. It's not consistency is not like, oh, you know, I I get up at seven in the morning and then I write. The problem is, how do I get up at seven in the morning and do write this kind of stuff? So I have a couple of tactical frameworks for this, but like that's that's the those are the ones that kind of work for me. So what I do know is I am. The most productive when I switch my phone off. Yeah. Seven o'clock. No, not seven. Like at eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um. My system also has its notifications completely switched off and I just need to create some kind of environment that that works this way. So what I did back in August when I started completely new, so like last year, right? Yeah. Not two days ago. Right. on at least on posting on LinkedIn and then getting this entire train going was to commit myself to a very, very, very specific thing that is not movable. Mm. And that was, I'm going to post once a day for the next six months, at least once, no matter the quality. Mm. This is important, right? So like yeah. when we release something, when we push something out, we have three things that we can that we can alter. <clears throat> we can alter the quality of it. We can yeah. alter the time that we deliver it on yeah, or the scope of it. Yeah. And you should only define one thing of these because you will fail on the other two anyways. So I always told myself, I'm going to post no matter how embarrassing it is, no matter how late it is, I'm just going to post something, even if it's embarrassing. Yeah. So you can reduce the quality. Maybe you sometimes you post something embarrassing or whatever, but like you do post because what that does is you're getting your exercise time in. And that mm. worked for me as a habit creation mechanism because with time, you also start to become better and you also start to kind of notice that these specific mm. things do not work, mm. right? Specific things do not work. And then I can start to read up on how do I do them better? And this is why people are completely over-focusing on, oh, how do I write hooks? How do I do this? How do I do that? Yeah. None of the people who are consistent are asking you this, but they should be, they are the ones that actually could, right? right. <laughs> so right. Um, that's the kind of funny thing. Yeah. These tactical frameworks are way too shiny. What you should figure wow. out is habit building and how to be consistent because you can move mountains if you are consistent, right? Like, I mean, I've proven it. Elena proves it. Like uh, all these people that are also on LinkedIn are proving it every day. You can go so much further because most people don't know how to create habits. It's not the efficiency. It's not whether they're writing better hooks or nothing. That helps once you are consistent because I have a lot more time that can be made efficient. But if you don't post, your efficiency of 80% means nothing. Wow. I also really like that you, not with a word, you mentioned algorithms or like hashtags <laughs> and how do you structure it and blah, blah, blah. No, that's, it's just, and, and I really think you're, you're spot on there. I mean, the, the, 
but but this is even outside of LinkedIn. This is a I mean, this is one of the key challenges that is so hard to figure out how. I mean, how to change your habits and how to kind of main. I mean, I can go to the gym every day for a week. I think I can probably. I, I think I can do that. But the second week is like the difficult. Like so, how, once I lapse. What do I do? Then I'm usually the guy I'm out. Like I can stick to a diet for a couple of days. And then once I think with a friend, I'm sitting there with a beer and think, okay, okay, fine. The same is true with content creation. I can, I can, for, for a month, I can go, I can really produce. And then there's a project and I've got a lot to do. And then, and then I lapse. Yeah. It's not your priority and anymore. Out the window, out the window goes the habits. Yeah, it's not so, your priority. So, but, okay. Look, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> here's the thing. No, but like we had this discussion last time as well. I like, just remember this now. So yeah. here's the thing. That's true. What determines <laughs> what determines how good you can become theoretically in a skill? What determines that? It's your talent, right? So talent determines how good, how high you could go in a specific thing. It would be foolish to say that Roger Federer was not a talented tennis player. Right. So that determines the ceiling of a of your right. skill. What determines how far you will go? the number one thing it's passion passion or force so if you don't have a child that is passionate about something then you will be forced by your parents now we know how that turns out that's usually not a good thing right but if you're passionate then you can reach your ceiling much more likely now most people will never reach their ceiling but talent i don't know a single talented person that is good in what they do without the work that they put in on the start and we don't have to be the best in everything. Like you don't have to be the number one worldwide. Like you don't have to be an Arnold Schwarzenegger for fuck's sake. Like, I mean, his, his documentary was interesting, by the way, on Netflix. But um, you, you, you don't have to. It's it, it is it is by and large, unfortunately, the amount of work. And because of the social yeah. media effect that we have, we tend to kind of play down the sweat, or we overplay it in a comical way. You know, like to the outside, um, in ways that makes it very hard to judge from the outside. Okay, like what went into this? A good example mm-hmm. is, is if you have a family, right? So like all these families that are super happy on Instagram, like you know, they're they're five children, everything is happy, and you just know between this picture and the last one, there was a lot of fights and a lot of stuff went wrong. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just we're no. very, very selective in what we want to show to people because then we start to believe that everybody is like this and nobody is like this. Right. So, you know, mm. you just you just have to ignore what's on the outside, put it in, and then you can worry about your algorithm if you want to. What I find, uh, I find this is a personal gr- grudge of mine with movies. Um, a lot of the times you watch a movie, I, I watched one recently about Stephen Hawking, the famous physicist. Um, and a lot of movies will basically push the idea forward that efficiency basically talent is, is what matters um they'll they'll and in this particular movie um the character Stephen Hawkins uh, solves some amazing problem half asleep like in his sleep you know and yeah. comes back the next day and is like the best uh, you know the best in the world of uh, and and all that and it's it's very disturbing and i find it's a very disturbing message also to 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 communicate to to young young people um one film i thought did not talk about is very interesting for that reason is uh, whiplash 
um, which is a film about um, mm -hmm. a drummer who, well, a student drummer in, in New York who is learning how to play jazz drums. And basically the whole film is about what usually films would like be a, you know, a fade to black or something. And the whole film's about that, that five seconds where, so it's all about how he trains hard. And, and I found that was a really interesting film in that respect. I wanted to ask you, um, with respect to what you're doing, you talk about the importance importance of of passions of mm. of passion. Um, this is a simple but maybe not easy question. What would you say in your activities is is the root of your passion? What what are you really passionate about in in what you're doing right now? So I have a fundamental belief that you can only be good in things that you're passionate about because I don't let myself be forced by anyone like that does not work. Right. So like, let's just assume that this is true for the moment. So what am I passionate about and what am I good about? So I could, for instance, um, imagine like, so I always had a, a lifelong dream of being an astrophysicist. And the problem is I am, I have dyslexia. I have trouble with understanding long form documents. I don't understand. Comp I cannot comprehend math as easily as other people. And I still think that I could be passionate about it, but I don't, I cannot put the work in. Like I just, I just can't like, it's too, this is really too hard for me. Like this feels too difficult for me. But the thing is when we talk about what we are passionate about, <clears throat> and this is jobs theory. Why do you play tennis? like you can satisfy a couple of different jobs, right? So I could talk, I could play tennis to earn money for my family because I'm just so good at it, right? Like, but it's, it doesn't give me that much joy or it is something that I want to do with my spouse just to spend a good time with my family, you know, like to connect more. You kind of have to ask yourself, what do you enjoy about the things in life, about the things you do? So when you talk to someone and say like, oh, she's a head of product and she's a head of product, that does not mean that we are both head of products because of the same reasons. Maybe we just landed in and we have yeah. to do it. Like I need to, right? And the other one is like, no, I like the technical challenge. So to answer your question now, I am an exceptional problem solver on the grand scheme, I feel like, you know, like on the strategy side, but I'm extremely bad at other things such as... Um, working in the very, very, very detail where it actually matters that you are so super, super, super precise. So when I write my guides, and I know that Scott is a fan, right? So when I write my stuff, all I do is I write for myself. I write for myself that I would understand it in the first pass. So this is why it is also structured and so kind of information dense because I struggle with the opposite. You will also notice that when you read my stuff, I've never had formal training in writing, by the way, but you, you will see when you read and, and look at my stuff, there is no big blurb of text. There's always line breaks everywhere because this is how I read. I have trouble comprehending text that is just, there's, there's just no line breaks, but it drives me crazy. And this is something to do with just how I process information and what I'm passionate about. And this helps me also to look at things in product management. I'm very good in breaking complex problems into smaller ones and then slowly addressing them piece by piece until the bigger one is kind of solved. And this usually happens on the visual side. Um, I guess the more interesting question is like, what would I do if I was not in product? I could imagine all kinds of jobs because, you know, everything that has to deal with problem solving, like I feel like I'm a detective some way, you know, you know I'm trying to find specific things. 
Um, I also know for myself that when I play games, for instance, like card games or board games or whatever, I always go for the strategies that nobody expects. And as soon as they work, they're not interesting for me anymore. So I'm by nature a disruptor. I try to find things that are efficient in ways that others did not think about it. And um, that's just what I enjoy. I try, I, I love understanding constructs where you put a lot of people in, which is organizations, right? So like, and I, I really, really, really do enjoy that. And um, it gives me joy that people are validating me, you know, so much that this seems to be striking a chord somehow. But I also need this affirmation because otherwise I would have my imposter syndrome telling me that I'm not good at it. So, you know, it's it's a good relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I I read this book some time ago by um, Alain de Botton, who wrote a book called, um, I think it's called A Job to Love. Mm-hmm. And the the point he was making, and hence the my question on the, you know, what is the passion in, in what you're doing was that when people are young, they want to become, um, you know, astronauts, uh, uh, firefighters. You know, firefighters, whatever, you know, the typical stuff. And and the, the the idea is what is it in these jobs that actually is um, yielding the the passion? What what is in that in that job that's that's really um, that you're interested in? In fact, and and it comes back to the jobs to be done kind of thing again. It's what is it that you're actually trying to achieve through this desire to become a firefighter or something? And the as you know, in the real world, not everyone can be a firefighter or an, astro- an astronaut. You can, the, the the gist of this book was that you need to find what it is in those things that you can, you can maybe find elsewhere and, and, and you can transpose the, because the actual essence of what you're interested in and passionate about, you can find elsewhere um, also. And I, and I thought that was a very, um, maybe obvious for, for other people, but I thought it was a very enlightening kind of thing for me anyway. That's there's there's a very interesting episode by um, from the Huberman lab with Dr. Maya Shankar. So she used to be a world class violinist, I think, so as far as I know, I don't know her personally, but like so she used to be a world class um, violinist. And then she had I think she had an accident or something and she can she could not perform it anymore. And she also went through this journey of like trying to figure out so like what was getting me up in the morning and, and and making me practice so hard for this. Like, what did I love about the instrument, you know, like about the performance in an orchestra and, and so forth. And she went into behavioral science, you know, of all the things like, you know, like mm-hmm. after playing the violin, now she's, she, she's playing with um, behavioral science. And it really is exactly what you said, right? What makes you tick and spending some time and really understanding what that is, is a worthwhile endeavor also in business. I mean, if I know what I'm passionate about, then I can form a growth plan based on this, because then you don't have to ask yourself, what kind of job title do I want to have? It starts to become more of like, okay, in the next job, I want to be challenged on this and this and this area. And that was very, very difficult for me as well. Like, so I was absolutely insufferable when I was dealing with a time in my life where I was just looking for Oh, I just have to pretend now. You know, I was I, I was beginning of my 30s. Oh, now I, I have to pretend that I know everything now, right? So like I've seen everything. I know everything. I understand everything about product management after like two or three years. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> um, and that's the thing, right? So why did I do this? 
I was afraid that people will not respect me otherwise because I did not see it lift from other people as well. I mean, this is the sad thing in our professional world. Oftentimes it is still not profitable sometimes, right? Or like sexy to just stand there and just say like, hey, I'm a product manager and I don't know these things about product management. Can someone tell me? And this is why I encourage juniors and also anyone that is my direct report, frankly, to just bring me a growth plan that really mirrors what they have an interest in. And frankly, do not care whether it has to do with my job or like with the job that we are doing right now at the company, as long as you foster this interest that you have, where you're also excelling at your job here in the company, then why don't you, why don't you invest time in that? Because I know if you have this kind of balance with your two lives that you will perform better at work and you will also appreciate that. So just like looking at the topics of what you do is a bit one-sided in that sense. So yeah, that was a very long agree to your to what you said, Jonathan. <laughs> I think one of the scarier aspects of this is is I've been sort of obsessed with this concept of our identity. How mm. we, you know, what is our identity? Is my identity a product manager? Is my what is it? Um, we we so often associate our identity, at least to some degree, with what we do professionally, and I think that's why it can be it can be this imposter syndrome or it can be or when we're we're seeing somebody else do something poorly, they think we're good. Like, oh, my gosh, is that me? It's like if I'm if I'm not good at this thing that I think I'm good at or that I've dedicated time to, it's like your very identity is threatened, which is mm. about it is terrifying and threatening a thought that I think you could have. Um yeah, it is. I don't know. And, How do we uh, navigate that? Well, I'm not, I mean, yeah, I'm maybe not the right person to talk about that particular <laughs> topic, but I think we tend to sit sometimes in rooms and think about, we're, we're very, very concerned about our own image that we project yeah. to the outside, right? So like, should I say this now? Should I not? Should I wait for the other person to say something you know, like this? We're so social, like we're trying to kind of weigh in our options and this and that, right? Like some people are doing it in a malicious way. Some people are trying to just like, they're just scared or whatever. It feels to me that oftentimes we just, we sit together in groups, everybody's looking at themselves and they complete, for, <laughs> for completely forget to look at the others, right? Yeah. Because we're so concerned with our self-image. I'm not a stranger to that feeling. Absolutely not. But I feel like it starts to get a little bit easier with... I don't know whether it's age or whether with the increased exposure that I have, I started to kind of understand. So the, because this concept of identity is very interesting because you have a different perception of me than anyone else in the world. Like every one of you has a different perception, right? So like you cannot give me my identity. This is not possible. So at the same time, I should kind of derive it from the opinions that you have and then kind of put it together with what I think about myself. And it is interesting because to some people, I'm a celebrity, right? So to some people in product management, I am a celebrity. You know, they tell me how great I am. They put me on a pedestal and so forth. And then to other people, they don't know me at all. Hmm. But it is interesting because you kind of can compare these two things. And then you're just like, hmm, that's how this feels, right? And it doesn't feel that good. It doesn't feel as good as you thought it would be. Like it does not fulfill you in some way. Right. And um, 
in fact, it's actually quite uncomfortable for me quite a lot of times. And that's not a humble brag in any way. I'm just saying that once you kind of get into this, this is the reason why people who are, I don't want to say successful, but like people who are more exposed are keeping to themselves because they know exactly how that feels. You just you you, you yeah. just want to be treated like a normal person. You want to burp, you know, like you want to burp in the in the in the um how do you say like uh, in the company of someone else without yeah. <laughs> being like observed all the time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it gets tiring to stand always on stage. So I could not imagine what the Mr. Beast, for instance, um, is going through, right? Like he cannot go anywhere anymore. And I'm not even close to a smidgen of this level, but depending on where you go, like to conferences or some other stuff, you kind of start to understand like, okay, this is an interesting thing. But to your point, like what does this do with your, with your, with your own identity? I think ideally you have to get to a point where you are happy with yourself and then just put that out. And it kind of, the difficult thing is, is to just say like, Hey, look, even if you don't like me, that's not changing the picture that I have of myself. And sometimes I have days where this works better. And sometimes I have days where this works not so good, but especially as, um, as someone that is more senior in a company, this is sometimes very, very difficult because it was unconceivable for me, how it feels to be a leader when you're not, when you have not been a leader, you know, like it's very, very difficult to imagine what that is, right? So like you kind of have this picture of like, oh, this is a person that is now a leader or an executive or whatever. But once you're in it, you kind of start to understand what made the job so difficult for them because it's not at all what you think it is. It's just yeah. different, but people also treat you different. So therefore they kind of change their perception of your identity. Right. And uh, yeah, so I don't have a solution at all. <laughs> This is a yeah. very philosophical one today. <laughs> I think it's just, it's for so many, LinkedIn is like so many things come together. It's like, you know, you're communicating things. I, I, I mean, not just you, but people are communicating things on LinkedIn. Like for what reason? I mean, um, to uh, to display your expertise, to ultimately help your help your professional standing in some way. And as soon as you, it's, some, it's like anytime you give a presentation in front of, like let's just say you had a big corporate gig and you're giving a presentation to the whole whatever the, your company. Well, the stakes are sort of high, right? It's like how well that goes, you know, could really impact your career. And now with LinkedIn, you're communicating something uh, with with a professional note, uh, sort of through a professional lens to the world. And that's where it's like, well, to what degree is it okay to say FFS? To what degree is it okay to share something personal? To what degree? Yeah. Is it is it acceptable to you know just to be hey look here's a big mistake I made blah 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 it's um it's almost a a paralyzing thought when I mean, you're communicating to the whole world <laughs> and the and it's not just and I think deep inside we also I think we just sort of have most folks have the need just to um to be creative and to communicate and to share we want to share the ideas that we have. But no. as soon as we're, we're on LinkedIn, it's like we're not we're not in the coffee shop. We're not just with it's not necessarily a safe environment. Right. I mean, if, if you it's uh, the stakes are something higher than zero. Um, yeah. And this is this is and this is a thing that we especially see also in business relationships. Right. So like if you have something to lose on the other side, yeah. then authenticity is in danger. What does that mean? Like if I am an employee of yours, yeah. if you're my boss. If I start to say certain things, there is a danger. Did you take this in my next performance right. review, which will influence my salary, which will influence this and that. 
And this is why I, th- I say as well, like I encourage people to have, if they can, not everybody's that privileged, of course, but if you can have diversified income streams so you can speak yeah. open. Because <laughs> one of the things that I can do right, right now at Jua as well is like, I can speak up to my CEO. I'm not afraid of him. Not that he's an intimidating person. It's just, I know yeah. from experience that when you cannot afford to lose a job, when you cannot afford anything in life, then you're going to make mistakes in the jobs where you're at. Yeah. Why? Because you start, you don't want to risk it. And that makes yeah. you actually a worse operator. And that's right. not to knock people. It's just the nature of things because we have this kind of strong relationship. And this is why I love working in product because most of the time as an operative product manager, you do not have direct reports. That means that the people that are talking right. to you in the team, they can be open with you because you have no power over their jobs. And that's what I don't understand. You know, like people just always want to be managers. No, you don't. You absolutely do not want to be responsible for three growth plans um, or like four or five direct reports that you have. Our current head of engineering right now, just to do the structure that we have, has about six or seven direct reports. That's not fun. It's not fun. It's, it, it's just not fun. And um, yeah. But we sometimes we somehow convince ourselves that the path to management is the path that's worth it. I don't know. Yeah. You know, Jonathan said, you know, for kids, we want to be cowboys, firemen, astronauts. I don't remember any little kids saying, <laughs> I want five direct reports by the time I, that's, that's what I, I want to be. When had I, someone, grow up. I actually had I want a to guy do performance appraisals. There was actually a guy in class that was called Boban, and he said, like, What do you want to be when you're big? Like, he said, like, I want to be a boss. I want to be a mafia boss. <laughs> like, okay. Don't know whether he made it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. Well, it's been quite a year for you. Uh, now, if I yeah. heard the story right, a year ago, you were at 500 followers, more or less. Did I did I have that story right? That's pretty correct. Yeah, it's almost, it's exactly one year. Yeah, on LinkedIn, it was 500, yeah. So the the certainly there's been so much here. One of the biggest things is consistency and creating a habit. Where did you get that inspiration when you started this? Where did where did that where did you where did that initial uh, thought come from? It obviously, was a um, successful strategy. For the strategy, I don't know. Like that one, I worked out with time. I just knew that I'm going to do. Like this is like this was my method of working. Like I was already far into my growth mindset, and I also knew that. I want to do advising. And I also knew that I am not good with outbound. So I'm not good with like Mm -hmm. advertising myself to people like just like, hey, can I advise for your company? I don't really enjoy that. So what I want to do is, is that people are coming to me and say like, hey, Leah, I know what you're about. I was reading your stuff, right? The product like growth. So there were a couple of people that were extremely important for me um, and also company strategies. So in terms of the the dry stuff, like companies that did this really well are HubSpot. HubSpot does a Mm -hmm. really fantastic job on like, you know, like creating a brand that is really solid. And this is not about deceiving people. It is about, it's about product-like growth. This is why I love this topic so much. You know, like it is about authenticity. It does not pay to trick people into anything. Mm. Yeah. And the other people were um, for sure, Elena Verna. She is probably the closest friend that I have that kind of embodied this role model of where this can go because she's a very, very clever way on, how to package content and and write about it and she showed me that it is possible now we have very difficult like we have completely yeah you know our, our personalities are like this right she's very organized she's very precise she's very introvert um i'm also an introvert but like like a little bit on the other side 
Um, I like going on podcasts, for instance. I love auditory visuals and so forth. And um, she just showed me how how this is possible. And it definitely also helped that she's a woman in 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 roughly my age, you know, because for me, it was always very, very difficult to kind of find role models to just see that this is kind of possible because it was a man's world uh, in tech, like the tech world in general. It was just impossible to imagine that I could do any of this. And I also did not think that I have a voice that is worth hearing. So I started that experiment and... She did not care at all whether I had 10,000 followers or 20,000 or 30,000. She was talking from to me since I had 500 followers. And don't know why. I have to ask her, actually. <laughs> I have to ask her. No, I don't. I really, I actually, now I ask myself because you don't have the bandwidth to talk to everyone. I know she didn't, yeah. but I'm extremely grateful. And she was definitely the one person that um, influenced me the most and i'm extremely grateful and and just like blessed to have met her in that sense yeah and now we're yeah. friends so you know sometimes it's funny because you do find friends over linkedin whether you believe it or not yeah it's also a dating portal apparently <laughs> <laughs> that'll be our next show <laughs> no dating secrets for linkedin <laughs> no, 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 that's, not, that's not a good one you know the biggest thing i mean she showed you that it was possible that sounds like a huge, massive thing. She showed you that it it was possible. I mean, it's that's it's be hard to be motivated to do much of anything if you didn't feel like it, like it could result. And she showed you that it was possible. That's, I feel like that's a huge. You know, it is thing. interesting. It is it is very interesting because I've been also extremely. I feel like, uh, how do you say, um, giving with my time to other people yeah. in the sense of like, you know, engaging with them, even if there's no immediate business or whatever, like I'm not, I'm not that opportunistic. I'm just like, okay, you know, I talk about topics that I find interesting. Yeah. And the interesting bit was I talked to dozens of people and I've also yeah. tried to teach them what I do. And there's very, very few people, like one in 30, maybe I would say, of people that I engage that really want to and will put the work in on a consistent basis to yeah. better themselves. And this is why this entire relationship also kind of worked. We just, she's yeah. not doing any work for me, but she corrects yeah. me, course corrects me. I course correct her when I see something. And this is just, you know, we're kind of workhorses. We just we just do our stuff. We're extremely consistent. We're extremely hardworking in that sense. We know exactly yeah. where we want to go. And we sometimes do course correct, but we're not, how do you say that? Like we're not, um, we're not drowning in self-pity. Why is this not working? Or why is this not working or something? Like we're always like trying to find ways to get through because this is a hard job. I'm just, I'm not going to tell you that this is easy, even if you're consistent, but consistency is the one thing that you need as a table stake before you can think about any other um efficiency frameworks as as weird as it sounds yeah makes perfect sense if you could go back a year ago give advice to yourself what would you what would you say would you tell yourself oh my lord that is a difficult <laughs> one i'm someone that always lives in the in the future in the sense of yeah. like you know i'm or like in the past in the present even if possible yeah. um i don't think i did that much wrong i think i think i did the right things i'm it would be foolish to say that I'm not privileged in what I do right now. Like this is, it is insane in a year. It was a lot of work, sure. But I was also incredibly lucky. I mean, I don't know whether this is possible anymore. If you just start from zero now, 
everything has changed with AI, you know, like how yeah. we present content. Everybody's now a PLG advisor for some reason. So like I have about 50 <laughs> more people who are doing the same. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's the downside of inspiring everyone to do it. Everyone will do it. So <laughs> you, kind you've of driven interest in your product category, meaning PLG as a category. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, so. I kind of, yeah, I exited PLG actually a little bit now because of this, because there's way too many people that are around this. Like I still, but I talk, so what I talk about is product-led sales, right? So like bringing both together, like sales and product-led growth. And um, we we definitely feel that this is the future. And this is also where almost nobody can follow because it's a very hard skill set to get right as an advisor and a consultant. Um, yeah. But I also yeah. feel like that's, that's something that, 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 so the, the, the fact that you're being so generous with your content and 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 your guides and so on, so and so everybody who hasn't should check them out. But I feel like that's at least that's how we kind of operate a little bit. Is the more transparent you are about that stuff, the more it pushes you also to to develop it. I mean, you it's if yeah. if you for one second believe that it's your five step guide that makes you successful, I think you're already on the wrong kind of track. And if it's for one moment you think it's the tool right that is the kind of the key thing behind it. It, it then i feel like you're already lost and and the more you i mean okay there are a couple of things that you probably can share and if you're a company that's a different question but but in terms of content and, and the way you think about stuff the more i that's at least my experience the more i put out the more it also challenges me to well i i, I need to rethink it i need to think it further and that's something yes they can copy yeah. others can copy stuff but they will never catch up the, on the thought process so yeah I don't mind skill, if, if others pick up the same thing. That's that. I mean, it's even great. That's validation. So it, thank it you is, very it much. Is. But yeah. they will never have gone through the same kind of loops and hoops yeah, to right. get there. Yeah. No, one hundred percent. And I think you know, like in the way that I'm doing it. I mean, I'm not just like doing this just for fun as well. Like I also earn money yeah. with it. Right. Like <laughs> let's just be clear on this. Yeah. But um, this is a differentiation from me to others. Yeah. I, it's just like. It, it still blows my mind. And I also, I love the attention in this regard that I get from people. Like when someone writes me an email and tells me that they tried something out and this is what worked and this is what didn't work. Like, you know, in a three, 400 people gig, then I'm like, wow, that is, yeah. You just, you, this is someone that sat down and read my entire 5,000 word essay on product like growth. Yeah. Just, just sat down and they actually consumed it and they found it valuable. That is an incredibly flattering thing to myself, you know, like to my ego yes. in some ways. Yeah. And it makes me feel good. It's not sustaining, um, but I would be lying if I didn't enjoy it. And this is this is just validation of skill that I did not have in my life before. And I feel like I'm, I'm privileged in this regard. But as I said, um, it's kind of a little bit counterintuitive to what we said at the very start of the podcast. It, we should also reward people for their efforts, right? Like for their consistency that they put in, even if they are sometimes not as like, you know, on the top of everything, like, because how far can I go now? Like, can I go to a hundred thousand followers? I don't know. Is it worth it? I really don't know. I really don't know at this point. So, so it's kind of at some point it becomes completely meaningless. It's, it's almost like a salary, right? Like at some point you just have the basic needs covered and then it doesn't really yeah. matter anymore mm -hmm. where you're going. Yeah. Um, I don't think it makes a, f a fundamental difference whether you earn a million a year or a billion a year. I don't know. Like I, I don't earn a billion, okay? <laughs> just to, to be clear on this. <laughs> and neither a million yet. Um, but um, 
Yeah, I don't know whether it makes a difference, but it definitely makes a difference whether you earn 10,000 or 200,000 a year, for yes. sure. So, yeah, take it for what you will. I had a question re relating to the um, the activity of inbound marketing or what you said. So inbound marketing, as you described it, getting people to call you up rather than you saying, hey, I'm here. Yeah. Um, do you want to work with me? Um, about 10 years ago, there was a lot of like, like when HubSpot also came up, there was this uh, other term. It was called content marketing, which is kind yeah. of related in in my mind, at least. Um, I'm wondering how can companies? Do you think this is something that uh, companies can 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 do in a way that's kind of cost effective, yeah. or um, or is this really for individuals for real? people uh, like so, yourself if you I want to do this really. as a company that's a very good question i love this question so like if you if you want to do this as a company um what we used to do is exactly what you said right so like we used to do content marketing and we hope that some brand is going to emerge from it and then people love the brand i think these times are largely over sure you still have some brands that are you know big and you kind of like them and so forth just because of the content that they produce but by and large, I think a lot of products that can will move towards community-led growth, which is kind of like product-led growth with people. So, you know, like the people around you and the communities that they build are becoming more of that. So what I mean with that is, um, let's say you are having, um, you want to sign up for HubSpot. And then there's this Discord server that you can go on or the Slack community where they just talk about HubSpot, where there's other users with HubSpot. Prior to this entire movement that we had now in the last couple of years, we were thinking about community as a more cost-efficient method of creating support. You know, like other users are telling others how they solve their problems. That's not really what's happening under the hood. What's happening under the hood is if I have access to other people using the same product, I form bonds with them. They're very honest with me. They're not representatives. They have no incentive to lie to me. Some people are a little bit combative, you know, like about brands for some reason, but you know what I mean? You know, like Microsoft versus Apple and that kind of stuff, but that's not what I mean. Community-led growth or like communities in that sense, building communities. And I'm building a community right now about my own brand, if you want to call it that. I mean, Lenny is also doing a fantastic job on this, um, just as a, as, a, as, a, as a good example. That's how you have to approach it as a company, if you can. And even for businesses, this can make absolutely sense. So... I can give you a good example on, so I run courses on Maven and by all intents and purposes, I'm a business there. And there is a creator community that we have on Slack, which is very, very interesting because the people there are also conducting experiments, you know, like on the system and like, hey, here's what works and here's what doesn't work. None of the content that the company themselves produced and they, they do produce it, of course, but like none of the content that they produced would have given me the trust in these results as someone that kind of does the same courses that I do. It's in the same age bracket that kind of talks to the same people, you know, like about all about this stuff. So community and forming trust through people is extremely important and becomes much, much more relevant in the future. And I think that's how you create a strong brand. If you think about it, I'm not a big fan of Tesla anymore because of Elon and what he's doing and yada, 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 yada. But like, there was a time where Tesla was really, really cool, right? Because people were driving around in Teslas and so forth. And Tesla drivers were 
greeting each other a little bit cringe, but you know, like they were doing this, right? So like it was fashionable, right? So like how do how do brands become like this? The product needs to be at least in some areas really revolutionary, like bleeding edge or like really, really good, but there also needs to be some kind of strong association from people to talk about the product and really to also recommend it. So it even HubSpot is a very emotional topic for me in some regards, you know, like there's kind of like this professional emotion around things. I do care about what's happening at my job. I don't, this is not just about, oh yeah, you know, now I just take a different CRM. It's not what this is. Like we spend eight hours or more every day in our jobs. So why wouldn't it matter greatly how I spend this time? I don't want to do stuff that just annoys me all day. So I think communities around this and especially complex products is a is a very powerful thing and i think that's where it's where it's going but to answer your question on how you're doing this with content um if you cannot form an entire community then you need to make it at least so that people can engage with you honestly without having some kind of fear of repercussion. So for instance, I'm always a little bit hesitant about re reviews, you know, like also on Google and stuff, you know, like someone gives a bad review, someone spit in my coffee and then <laughs> company is starting to respond. That's not what I mean. I just mean like, in the end, you need to do the same as a person. You need to produce consistently good content that gives someone a better day on their work or is moving them forward in their career. There's no way around this. And you can in some way automate this in some way you can't but the, the f very few brands can really do this in the long term i feel like just with yeah. pure content that was yeah. a bit of my experience and and the reason i asked is if you want to sell the idea of doing inbound marketing to brands and and, and companies it's it's quite an uphill battle uh, you know, because there's a lot of upfront investment. Okay, you went very fast building yeah. a nice community in in less than a year, but how many people are posting every day and uh, and maybe not getting the same kind of results? Although maybe you would say that's not the case. If you're posting every day, you would get these results. But there is a fear if you're thinking, okay, should I do? If we're just talking about communication and marketing, should I do an ad or should I, you know? and then do Facebook ads or something, or should I now write an article yeah. that I'm going to spend eight hours or whatever the amount of time is researching and doing like a really good article that I'm going to put on my website. And not only am I going to do it this week, but I'm going to do it every week. Maybe we should hire someone to do this. So it, it immediately becomes an enormous budget. And with, I would, uh, I think reasonably, you can never be sure that there's going to be results. So Typically, companies will prefer just say, well, you know what, I, I'm just going to do Facebook ads. It's, you know, I can see the results. I can do this. I'm not going to, um, you know. So how can you justify that, that, you know, doing one or the the other? And that's... Yeah, it's, um, it's a very interesting question about how do you predict, like, how do you make a predictable pipeline that is coming into your business in whatever form? And that is extremely difficult to do because if it was easy, then everybody would do it and then it becomes hard again. So... This is the thing. Um, because it is so hard at the start to build something like I did, you know, like the first six months were not a lot of fun. I was I I was I was trucking around on like six, seven hundred followers and so I, it was not fun, right? Like I had no reactions to some of these posts. Um the reason the the reason 
this is kind of the reason because it looks so hard from the outside that you then think that this is going to be so hard in the future. You cannot imagine the scaling, right? Like, and this goes back to this point that I said, we have trouble imagining the future of also a business on how it scales in the future. Mm. Now, with classical business functions, we have kind of arrived there. We do know that a company that is running at 1 million revenue, which is not a lot for, I don't know, 20, 30 people, that this is not a lot. But we do know from performance from other companies that if the month-on-month growth is on a consistent um, climb, that in a couple of years, this will result into a DCF calculation that results in a very high, good, you know, buyout. We kind of know that. But we're not really extending this also to our channels. Now, it is also very difficult, right? Because sometimes you can do something for years and it just does not yield any any result. That is true. There's probably a lot of layers out there that did not make it. Let's also be true about this, right? Um, but it depends on how much competition that you have and whether you're aware of what you do is really special. Because if everybody starts to do what I do in the tone that I do and the speciality that I have, then it's not profitable anymore. It's just what it is because then they will undercut me by a thousand dollars per hour. And, you know, then I have to also lower my prices maybe. And that's just how the market works. So in essence, what I'm trying to say is that things that are easy to do and have obvious value are not profitable. Mm-hmm. Especially if you compete with others, right? If you, if you, if you, if you compete with others, because um yeah that's just the nature of it is but things that are seemingly hard but profitable um they're probably worth doing it's just why it is i think a challenge for a a company is finding a a voice and what i mean so i think that is kind of an additional challenge in the sense that um i one of your let's say modes as a content producer is is your you, the voice you you bring, I, and I strongly believe this also through a mistake. I, I made a mistake in my previous company where we very consciously made a decision to not have a voice, and I explained the reason. So we had a company making films for other companies, and a lot of the people in that space were um, kind of very arty and not very, you know, we're not very quote unquote serious, although that's probably not true, but it's just what we had in mind. And we really wanted to build, let's say, a serious company where we productify or whatever the word is, uh, the service and make, you know, where people could come to us and really know what they get and we can guarantee a certain level of quality, etc., um, and in hindsight, I think it was a really uh, big mistake. It was it was a bad decision because in this space, if you product pr- productify whatever the word is, these like some a product that doesn't have a clear return on investment, where it's uh, and there's a strong emotional component where it's very hard. Of course, people make videos or make content in order to increase their revenue in the in the long term, but it's very hard to connect a piece of content to the revenue you create. Um, on the other hand, you can directly see a piece of content and say, well, I really like that, or I don't really like that. And this is a clear metric that no. people use. Um, and 
if you do the same as everyone else, you will find someone in the end, and it's kind of what happened to us, you will either company will, will start do it, doing it themselves, or you can find people in the Philippines who do it, you know, for one tenth of the price. And you have no nothing, no moat, no nothing that can you know keep you. And if you're in a kind of artistic space, which I think making content, there's this kind of an artistic component to it, um, then you want people to say, well, this is Leah's content. I can recognize it. There's only yeah. Leah that can do this kind of stuff. And and I think uh, you will lose some clients for for example we we would have lost some 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 clients in the short run because people say well we, we yeah, really don't. don't like the these this style or whatever but you would if you find people who like what you do then you're basically made for for a long time so 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 i think this idea of having a voice is really important and that's why i see a kind of challenge also for for companies to to do this more inbound marketing they i'm not it's it's not impossible but it's it's something to bear in mind i would say i think what this is 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 a positioning game right so like what we're trying to do is we're trying to position ourselves in something that makes us special and the weird thing about it in difference between people and companies is if i leave a company i take my brand with me right so like i take the brand with me so i can have as many jobs as i want but i take my brand with me with a company it's kind of different so what does a company identify themselves with or like, ident- like, how do they create a company's identity? Um, you kind of have to do it with something that changes all the time. And what does change all the time? It's what's what is what makes you special in the market. So, the identity of Uber, for instance, in the market was at some point completely different than what it is today because there's just now more competition. Also, the the, the, the classical taxi services they're starting to wake up to actually what was happening and so forth, and. That's kind of like the challenge, right? It, this is not up to the content writers to find the voice or like to have a really good content writer, even though that does help you, of course. But it is to kind of figure out with the market what makes us special. Because if you have five attributes to yourself and all of them are average, then you should be very exceptional in one of them and be a little bit shit in the others because you can sell yourself on the first one. I've talked about this with um, Gaurav Bora about, from Superhuman uh, on my podcast about this. And he said specifically, look, our product is secure, but we're not talking about security. This is not what we're doing. We just make emails extremely efficient. And that's our differentiator because Gmail is garbage, right? It's just not efficient at all. Like this entire interface just drives you crazy the entire day. That's what we're selling ourselves on. We could also start to advertise on security, right? But that's not our voice. That's not our identity. And you have to have some kind of mechanisms where you kind of figure out if these needs change, you also need to change your voice so you're not losing your brand um, equity in the market. Yeah. Let's talk about your company for a little bit. What what type of companies would be your ideal clients and what props, what problems and type of obstacles would they have when they come to see you that you're best suited to help them with? So... Typically, it's a company that has a product that either has a self-serve motion already in place or Mm. will go self-serve. So like something that has a trial, freemium, whatever. Um, Usually these are B2B companies. So Mm. I work mostly with B2B, um, tech, SaaS, scaling, somewhere between 15 million and 100 million of revenue. That's usually what it is because anything that is 
much much younger you know like for instance i don't know two to three million revenue yeah. these are startups that they do they don't pay you any money they just give you equity and then they just go <laughs> bust the year after which is fine it's fine but like i don't want to do that right um so i need to have leverage on a lot of teams at the same time so there should be some kind of product department of course or a big sales organization that wants to kind of learn how to create good products because that's essentially what i'm doing so when i look at the people that i have in my cohorts then very interestingly, about 70% of those that want to learn about product-led growth are from sales-led companies. So these are sales directors, product directors, um, VP of sales, VP of product, head of growth, that kind of stuff. And that's quite interesting. So classical head of growth positions are also quite interesting for me to advise on because they are usually coming from the marketing side. You know, So how do we scale growth demand through marketing? which product-led growth kind of puts on his head. And um, yeah, they come to me and then I advise them on it, either through teaching or through advising. So B2B SaaS above 15 million. That's usually my ideal client. With some sort of, some form of self-servable product. Yeah. Is the sort of goal that that you would be able to work with them for a season and sort of get them up to a speed where they're sort of up and running on their own? Or is it more like... Yeah. Is that, is that the is that the the idea? So, the average the average number. So we re, we ran the numbers lately, and it it is interesting. There is a number that I can tell you that seems to be kind of an average that plays out through one on one coaching and uh, company coaching as well and advising. Yeah, and that's ten months. Ten months. For some reason, ten months is kind of like the time where you either are happy with Leia and then you find someone that does the job now for real or the company has internalized what they want to do or they did hire someone or like I help them hire, for instance, a head of growth or someone to do it internally because you cannot afford Leia for such a long time <laughs> for, right. you know, like on an advising contract when you could have someone doing it full time in that role. Right. And so it usually comes down to 10 months. So ideally, um, a good mandate is one that goes at least four to five months because then we see the impact. Yeah. Um, anything shorter is usually not that good, I would say. Yeah. Tell me more about that. So it takes about four to five months to see an impact, like with with yeah, revenues, so, I presume you mean? Uh, revenue would be nice. That's if you have some existing motion, right? But like yeah. if you talk about a sales-led company that is doing product-led growth for the first time, kind of have to sit together with everyone to just define like, okay, so what is customer success? How how does yeah. this look like? Yeah. And then the first month you just spend usually helping them how to structure their onboarding process because that's okay. usually what every company wants. So Leah, right. can you help us with our onboarding process? Should we make right. this trial page? Should we make it free? What should be in the plans? That kind of stuff. This is very actionable advice. Yeah. And usually with time, then we also start to structure more like on the retention side. So, okay from all the fast optimizations that we did now from the outside, what makes a good product, right? So like, what is your yeah. positioning? What are your ICPs? How do we kind of restructure yeah. also in the company, how product development works? Yeah. So um, yeah, that's the second priority that we usually have. Yeah. That, that, that evolution, that makes sense. I have to think yeah. there's a lot of companies looking for that, <laughs> looking for that assistance. Yeah. So um, far. Yeah. So far they do. And I'm happy for it. <laughs> Well, as you're getting started, uh, not getting started, but as you're, let me say, ramping up with sort of full time with your own, with your own game, what are some things you're excited about over the next year? Um, holidays. Holidays. For sure. <laughs> uh, 
I'm looking forward to just being able to sit down for like six to seven hours on a Sunday and just write one piece. Yeah. Um, I couldn't do this for the longest time. I haven't released mm. a guide in months. Mm. Um, or likely, well, I mean, it's not true. Maybe, yeah, but just like not that much. And time is a blur. But that's what I'm definitely looking forward to. Just like to have this really focus on my own business and and yeah, see what happens. You know, it's a very unpredictable business. You never know whether you're going to end up with a good year or a bad year. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking mostly forward to just writing and having time for myself. I'm a big, big loner. That uh, sometimes comes on podcasts. <laughs> the, um, I would I would think that with, I would think with with the full time gig not there that. I mean, that you would have that would sort of bring with it a burst of energy, rest, creativity. That seems like that would bring, I mean, obviously, there's uncertainty things as well, but um, it just seems like that would just provide whatever this thing you've been doing for the last year. This seems like yeah. that would be like uh, it's going to only accelerate. <laughs> I, I for sure hope so. And I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, fantastic. Well, before we wrap up, anything else you'd like to let folks know about? <laughs> be, worn be, be yourself watch that documentary about Stephen Hawking <laughs> I don't know I think it was about <laughs> Hawking radiation but, um, no not much just like keep on uh, being led by the product it is about trust in the markets and it's about uh, authenticity so yeah. honesty is probably the way forward to profit and laughter <laughs> I don't know <laughs> yeah that was not a good closing remark <laughs> well you know i mean your posts often make me laugh i mean i look i very much you know i mean i i realize i say this a lot but i don't i don't mind repeating myself uh, but um it's truly great quality and that's what I, that's why i um i'm just sort of amazed at how you how you crank it out but it's but it's very it's very entertaining also so that you thank you look not it's you know you one of the things you said is which I think is absolutely right. It's like sort of your talent that sort of defines your your ceiling, and then but then your effort sort of. But there's no guarantee of getting there. What came to mind when you mentioned that was like we we have this phrase. Well, he, that person's the Michael Jordan of this, the Michael Jordan of that. To me, what that means is there's somebody that had an extreme high talent and also put in extreme yeah. high work. That it's it's the Michael Jordan of this because that's such because he was lucky in a sense that he was had some you know some god-given abilities that he didn't have anything to do with but he also put in the work on top of it and then you that's where you get truly the best and uh the best and something well, anyway well thanks so much leah it's been uh it's, it's, it's been amazing it's just been uh we just enjoyed speaking with you so much so you can find leah at leahtherin.com that's l-e-a-h-t-h-a-r-i-n.com and if you follow the, uh, you'll find on the Product Quest podcast on LinkedIn, we'll post links to Leah's site. And uh, just follow her on LinkedIn. We're fans, as you can tell. Also follow her on Twitter or, or X. Yeah, you had a very funny, uh, you had a funny meme about the number of people that follow you on LinkedIn versus on Twitter one time. Uh, I just here. don't. I'm just not active there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't. I'm going to tell people to fire there anyway. L-E-A. Yeah. H-T-H-A-R. Lilia, thanks so much for being our first repeat guest, for sharing your expertise with the world in such an entertaining way. We're fans. We hope that you'll also be our first third-time guest at some point. Yeah, I cannot wait to return to the Product Philosophy Podcast. 
And uh, oh, but that's a good name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and that friends concludes today's product quest podcast follow us on linkedin reach out anytime productquestpodcast at gmail.com and we'll see you next time thanks so much and um, have a very nice evening all of you thank you so much for having me bye bye thank you thank you very much